0: Well, as you can tell from our reading, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 11 this morning. If you brought your Bibles, and I hope you did, then I would encourage you to open up there with me. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can open up your phone or perhaps even grab one of the pew Bibles there in front of you. If you're not used to handling your Bible, the book of Isaiah is right in the middle of it, right about at the 50% mark. Some people say that, that the book of Isaiah is, in many ways... The Bible within the Bible, that you understand the whole of the Bible through Isaiah. And so it's only appropriate that it would be right in the middle, and you can open up your Bible right there. If you need to cheat and look at the table of contents, that's fine. I do that sometimes too. I would encourage you to do that. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 11. Before our Advent series in Revelation 21 and 22 over the last few weeks, we had been slowly working our way through Isaiah. We started at the beginning of the fall, sometime back in September. And we've made our way all the way through Isaiah 10 prior to Advent. And some of this was by design. Because when you get to Isaiah chapter 11, what you find are promises about a perfect king reigning over a perfected kingdom. And so we decided that it would only be appropriate to take a little break during Advent, go look at Revelation 21, Revelation 22, consider this new creation, this new Jerusalem that Christ is creating or that God is creating in Christ, and then return back to Isaiah 11 and go, oh, that's where you got it from. But God's really been promising this all along. I know that for many of you, the book of Revelation is an intimidating book, but really what it is, is it's an Old Testament commentary. It's a stringing together of Old Testament promises and imagery to show what exactly God has been up to and is up to in the annals of history as He brings all of human history to a close. Well, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11. Popular evangelical on Twitter not where I would suggest you get your theology from, but remarked in 2016 that that year, 2016, is the year that marked evangelicalism's death, that the world would look back, history would look back and mark the tombstone of evangelicalism in 2016. Of course, you know what 2016 was, that was the election of of current president. Donald Trump, and there was all kinds of controversy around the supposed 80% of rank-and-file evangelicals that voted him into office, and how that has just made over the last two or three years has caused everybody to just go crazy. Everybody has lost their marbles, but is it the case that one man has really caused all of this? Whatever this may be, chaos and, and rifts and division, or is it that one man has revealed something that's been there all along, and that one man and one year, in a way that has been unprecedented compared to the years around them, have exposed the heart of our culture, has stored the heart of many evangelical Christians and many of those who would be the cultural despisers of evangelical Christianity. It's exposed the hopes of what we understand to be the clear path toward utopia, where righteousness reigns, depending on the judges that you elect, of course, and how the Constitution is interpreted. I want to suggest... That what we've seen over the last two years is not a surprise to God, and that is not fall outside of and is not aberrant in any way to the way that He has been fulfilling His purposes through the ages. God is moving along just as He always has, doing exactly what He has set out to do, and He will accomplish it without fail. But how often are we tempted to place our hope in the the utopias that we think that we can build based on getting the right candidate in place on the right king or the right prince or the right governmental philosophy, whether it's capitalism or democratic socialism or whatever it may be. Of course, we're not the only ones dealing with this. Many of our brothers and sisters in Great Britain as well as in Scotland and Ireland and surrounding areas are, are dealing with all of the possible ramifications and fallout of Brexit and the relationship of, of Great Britain to the rest of the United Nations and its neighbors and so on and so forth. You saw perhaps even in the news this week that the Chinese government wants to take both the Bible and the Koran and wants to change it so that it is in keeping with communistic teachings. And that may, news of that kind of sort, may cause you to despair or to become distraught. And yet we just saw last week that God has promised that anyone who adds to these words, He will add to them plagues. And anyone who takes away from these words, He will take away the tree of life. God's Word will not be tampered with. And so we look around and we go, world history... Is really one attempted utopia after another that has ended up in ashes. And as grand of an experiment as the United States of America is or may be, it will end up exactly the same. So we go to Isaiah 11 because we are looking for a government and a plan and a ruler that fulfills all of the hopes and all of the dreams of our greatest longings and our biggest imaginations when we conceive our own utopian ideals. He's the shadow behind it all and ultimately the fulfillment. It is Christ our King. Isaiah 11, we're going to see three things. We're going to see in verses 1 through 5 that Christ is the perfect King. We're going to see that Christ is the perfect King. And then we're going to see, beginning in verse 6, going all the way to verse 9, that His kingdom is, or that peace and joy fill His kingdom. So Christ is the perfect King, and that peace and joy fill His kingdom. And then we'll see, finally, in verses 10 all the way through 16, that we are, will enjoy His kingdom by trusting in Him. I hope that we're able to get to the end of the chapter. I have an eye on time, and we may end up a little bit closer. Really, chapter 11 and chapter 12 are one big unit, so if we don't finish, that's fine. We'll pick up where we left off, and we'll make sure to get all the way through chapter 12 by tomorrow. But I just want to consider this first point, that Christ is the perfect King. All pointing to this one big idea of the text, and that is that those who trust in Christ the King will enjoy His perfected kingdom. Those who trust in Christ the King will enjoy His perfected kingdom. We're going to see a handful of things about this King in verses 1 through 5. But as we head into it, let me give you a little bit of context. Isaiah 10, if you remember, gives us a picture of God chopping down a giant forest of human arrogance and of human oppression. Assyria was the bully of the day. They were the Tolkienian orcs. I've been reading Lord of the Rings lately. They're the orcs taking over the world, and nobody was able to stop them. Well, in the first half of chapter 10, we see that God uses Assyria's arrogance like an axe to cut down Israel to a stump. Israel had rebelled against God, they had worshipped other gods, they wanted to be more like the nations and they wanted to be like God and so they gave their trust and their hope and their fealty to that which is not God and God punished them. And he used Assyria's arrogance to do it. But then in the second half of chapter 10, God turns the axe toward Assyria itself and he lops them down, as we see chapter 10, verse 33, with terrifying power. And so they are just a tool. As powerful as they may be, they were but a tool in the hands of a sovereign God. When we get to the end of chapter 10, all we see left in this history is a smoldering wasteland of stumps. Isaiah is using this devastating imagery to show that this is what the world is like when mankind rejects God and attempts to create their own versions of utopia for their own glory. It is bleak and it is terrifying. And that is what the pages of history look like. But God promises that the world isn't going to be like this forever. He hinted at it in chapter 2. There he revealed that the mountain of the Lord is going to stand high above every other mountain and that from there God will judge the nations in righteousness from his word and that there will be peace among men. That's the passage where swords will be beaten into plowshares. Essentially, firearms will become farming tools. Isaiah chapter 2, peace will reign. And then in chapter 4, a couple chapters later. God introduces us to a beautiful branch, and that branch, He says, is going to bear fruit, and that fruit is going to be the pride of of God's people. And it's fruit, these fruit, that fruit is specifically going to be a people that He has redeemed and He has cleansed from sin, and this branch is going to one day cause them to dwell with God as a bride dwells with her husband. And God is going to be their refuge, and God will be their shelter. They are going to be forever loved, and they are going to be forever safe. That was chapter 4. And then here in chapter 11, we find the, the lengthiest discourse on God's gracious goal of a new creation and a new people that we've seen thus far in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. That here in chapter 11, in the midst of a wasteland of smoldering stumps, that's the end of chapter 10, the branch appears, and it's the Messiah, and it's a wondrous vision of the perfect King reigning over His perfected kingdom. What Isaiah is talking about, what he's hinting at, what he's pointing toward is Jesus, so here in the first five verses, Isaiah is going to give us no less than four things that are going to be true about this king. No, four things that are true about Jesus, the Messiah. We see beginning in verse 1 that He is not what we expect. He says, "...there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit." Well, I've already just briefly explained that a shoot from a stump builds on this forest imagery from Isaiah chapter 10, and we have a picture of the human race essentially as an ecological disaster. The entire forest has been cut down with one swing of God's axe, and all we see are stumps. So, by the end of chapter 2, there is no movement, there is no life, there is no sound, there are no Birds fitting from limb to limb, it is dead silent. But in verse 1, all of a sudden, some movement can be seen, and it's small. It's just one little shoot, one little branch bearing fruit. And we notice in verse 1 that that shoot comes from the stump of Jesse. Who is Jesse? Who are we talking about? Jesse, if you remember, is the shepherd father of King David. David was the youngest son that nobody thought would be king. He was ruddy in appearance, wasn't that impressive? God doesn't look at the outward appearance, he looks at the hearts of men. And so David ascended to the throne. And it wasn't because David was so mighty, or so great, or so glorious, or so accomplished. David is raised to the throne because thousands of years earlier, God had promised that He would multiply Abraham's offspring into a great people and that kings would come from him. That's Genesis 17. And then God repeats and He narrows this promise to Abraham by promising that these kings are going to come from the line of Abraham's great-grandson, Judah. So you may remember, Judah is going to be like a lion and the scepter is never going to depart from Judah. So we are looking for a lion from Judah from whom the scepter will never pass. Well, Jesse was from the line of Judah. And his son David was the initial fulfillment of God's promise thousands of years earlier to Abraham. And now I say initial Because David wasn't the final fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. He was but another step in an even greater plan. And so when David becomes king, God narrows the promise further. He gave it to Abraham. He narrowed it to Jacob who gave it to Judah. And now he's going to narrow it further with David. And he's going to promise... He's going to promise David, David this son of Abraham and this son of Judah, that his offspring would be king and that his throne would be an everlasting throne and that the scepter would never depart from him. Well, that promise appears at first glance to be fulfilled in Solomon because Solomon brings in the golden age of Israel. Oh, what a glorious king, but it doesn't last. Solomon ends up dying. It's not everlasting. And his sons ended up being corrupted. The kingdom is divided. And the throne is defeated, or so it seems. Many years later, another son of Jesse would come. And like David, he wouldn't be very impressive to look at. He wouldn't come from a prominent family, and he will be easily overlooked, and he will be easily underestimated. And the reason for this, or rather into this smoldering stump of human history, in an obscure part of the Roman Empire almost 2,000 years ago, we see, according to Isaiah 9-6, that a child was born. Nobody noticed. And God wants us to know in this, in this first verse, in this And this idea of us overlooking and underestimating this King who comes in a manner that that we totally do not expect, He wants us to know where we are to find hope for the world. It's not in the halls of political power. It's not in any laboratory of medicine or science. It's not in any technological advancement. And it's not going to be any new insight from the lecture halls of philosophy. This little child, this little shoot from the stump of Jesse, Isaiah says, he is not what we expect, but he is literally qualified to rule the whole world unlike anybody else in history. And the reason for that is found in verse 2, because he will secondly be anointed by the Spirit. Look at verse 2, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The man Jesus had the greatest anointing of the Holy Spirit in the history of the human race. Luke's gospel tells us that he was full of the Holy Spirit. In fact, later in that chapter, Luke 4, he quotes Isaiah a prophecy that comes from later in Isaiah and says that, he has, that the Holy Spirit has come upon him so that he might proclaim freedom to the slaves. He has come proclaiming liberty, that is the gospel. He is full of the Holy Spirit. And this power that he's been anointed with, it's the power by which he will remake the entire world. It's the power by which the original creation was created and it's the power by which the new creation will be created. What human would have ever thought of that strategy for remaking the world? You see, God doesn't stoop to the weakness of human strength or the foolishness of human wisdom. God always outperforms our power by the most underrated, undervalued power in the history of the world, and that is His Holy Spirit. Here's what this means, verse 2. That Jesus Christ has the spirit of wisdom and understanding for leadership. He's the ultimate leader. He has the spirit of counsel and of might for war. He will have decisive victory over his enemies. And Jesus Christ has the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord for holiness. He has a righteousness that is so great that it will be able to be imparted to his people that they would be righteous as he is righteous. That unlike every other human conqueror, he comes as somebody with whom we have nothing to fear. That we can open up to his influence and his authority and his power with nothing to fear. We have everything to admire in him and doing so will do us nothing but good. Nobody has ever gone out on a limb to obey Jesus' commands and come out a loser. Nobody ever has, and nobody ever will. Well, here in Isaiah 11 is the leader of every human heart that every human heart has been longing for, and it's Jesus. And it only keeps getting better in verses 3 and 4 because we see that this king, this perfect king, oh, he is passionate about justice. Look at verse 3, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. The activity of verse 3 that you see there is decided by the qualifications of verse 2. He is able to do in verse 3 these things because he is what he is in verse 2, and that is by virtue of the Spirit's anointing and power. That Jesus Christ is wiser than every other person because He has the anointing of God on Him. He operates from God's wisdom and not man's wisdom. Well, what does this tell us? What can we learn from this? It's telling us that the anointing of the Holy Spirit is not a blowout emotional experience. Rather, to be anointed by the Spirit is to be given spiritual insight and access to wisdom and understanding, otherwise completely beyond our awareness. We didn't even know it existed unless the Spirit Himself reveals it to us. Some people, perhaps you're among them, you think Jesus is just a really nice person. But when it comes to the hardball of real life, He's relatively incompetent. I mean, He'll warm your heart like a Hallmark card, but you can't pay the bills with Hallmark cards. He's a comfort and an inspiration, but perhaps not somebody that you feel you can build your life upon. But the Bible says in Colossians 2 that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. All the treasures of wisdom. All the treasures of knowledge. But just like any other valuable treasure, this treasure is hidden. But it's not hidden from us. It is hidden for us. That through the Spirit, it is just waiting to be found and exploited. Only here's the deal. It can only be found in Christ. It will not be found anywhere else. It will not be found in Google. It will not be found in your spouse. It will not be found in any president from any party. It will not be found in any king or any philosopher. It can only be found in Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Him. Nowhere else. This kind of wisdom and this kind of insight that every single one of you long for, that every single one of us is searching for, is found in Christ. Because he has been anointed with the Spirit and because his delight is in the fear of the Lord. That's why we see in verse 3 the image of this king with subjects coming before him with their disputes. And notice that he sees through all the clever arguments, verse 3, That his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He won't judge by what his eyes see. He'll decide disputes by what his ears hear. He sees through all clever arguments, and he's never going to be fooled by the sophistry that fools everybody else. That's because by the anointing of the Spirit, he's able to see beyond what everybody else sees. He's able to see beyond outward appearances. He's able to hear behind the clever arguments and the justifications into the very truth of things. He doesn't just see outward appearances. That's what everybody else sees. That's why we're so easily fooled, and that's why we so easily fool others. But he sees beyond that. He sees beyond outward appearances. He sees into every single human heart. And if we're honest with ourselves, that is both comforting and a little bit scary. When John saw Jesus, that is the Apostle John, when John saw Jesus, he said that Jesus had eyes like a flame of fire, that's Revelation 1, that He is able to see all things with utter and terrifying holiness. Nothing is hidden from His sight. And that's why I think John goes on in Revelation 2 and in Revelation 3 when John writes these seven letters to seven churches on behalf of Jesus that he begins each letter with Jesus' words, I know. The beginning of every letter, those are the first two words. I know. I know. (laughs) Oh, I know. To Ephesus, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance. To Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty. To Pergamum, I know where you dwell. To Thyatira, I know your works, your love and your faith and your servant and patient endurance. To Sardis, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Only King Jesus can see that. To Philadelphia, I know your works. To Laodicea, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. I want to spew you out. I know that he has eyes like a flame of fire. Whatever it is that you're going through right now, whatever sin you're struggling with, whatever doubts you have, Jesus is telling you this morning, I know. You may be invisible from others, but I know what you're going through. You may be able to fool others, but I know your heart. I know your needs, I know how to take care of you, I'm here, nobody's fooling me, I see past everything, I hear behind everything, it's okay, you can trust me, lay it down, I am bearing your burden. Is that your Christ? How many clever human leaders, how many really smart people have been deceived and misled and caused injuries to others? Oh, but Jesus Christ, our Lord, he is of a genius on another level. Nobody can fool him. And it's because, according to verse 3, his delight is in the fear of the Lord. What is the beginning of knowledge? Beginning of wisdom, rather, Proverbs 9, 10. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Jesus rules with unparalleled and undiminished wisdom because his delight is in the fear of the Lord. That is his delight. That word delight in Hebrew is a different word that's typically translated delight through the Old Testament. To paraphrase, the word indicates that Jesus has a nose for what delights God. It's like walking into the kitchen when something really great is cooking going, ah, That's the good stuff how I feel about garlic. I walk in, and my wife's cooking garlic. Oh, yeah, that's the good stuff. Well, that's the image of this word delight, that Jesus, that's what God loves. That's justice. This is the heart of my Father. This is the will of my Father, and that's what He delights in. He doesn't just know it, but he relishes it in the way that we might relish a savory dish with our noses. It's not just brain power. It's not just intellectual assent. It is a relishing and a delight that emerges from a perfect and unfallen and an undeceived, deceived heart. That is our king. He delights. In the fear of the Lord, and he is passionate about justice, which is why we see in verse 4 that with righteousness he will judge the poor, and he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." There at the beginning of verse 4, judging the poor doesn't mean that he's going to condemn the poor. It means that he's going to defend the cause of anyone and everyone who is humble enough to not join the bullies and not join the tyrants and the show-offs of the world, even if they're trampled underneath, that he will judge all people and those who are humbled will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. So the poor here that he's talking about is not necessarily speaking of the financially disadvantaged, though that might be true in some instances. The poor that are being talked about in verse 4 are the people who have paid a price to follow Christ and to believe in God and to cling in His promises, even if it means being trampled on by those who reject Christ and His promises. They are, according to the next line, the meek of the earth. You see that there? Who did Jesus say would inherit the earth? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He looks us right in the eye with all seriousness and with no exaggeration, and he says the meek will inherit the earth the meek will write the last chapter of history and it will last forever. And so it's interesting that the promise that is given to the seed of the woman in Genesis 3, that he will crush the serpent's head. Well, when you get to Romans chapter 16, verse 20, Paul quotes that passage from Genesis 3, but doesn't apply it to Christ. He applies it to those who are in Christ. He says that you church, are going to be the ones that crush the serpent's head. And it's going to come through the faithfulness of your gospel proclamation and of your enduring and faithfulness in this earth. That the meek will not only inherit the earth, the meek are going to be the very ones that are going to bring about the last chapter of history. Jesus has come to redirect the flow of power in the world. And it's not what the world expects. It is going to be underestimated and overlooked. It'll be like a mustard seed. Oh, but it's going to be bigger than every other kingdom. And in the end, there will be no room for the Machiavellis of history. Christ will stand with his victorious bride. And as we saw over Advent, she will be the last player on the stage of history standing in victory. The meek inherit the earth. Not only that, but the second half of verse 4, Jesus the Messiah will not only reward the meek and give them an inheritance, that is the new creation, but he will judge all evil by his word. And notice that he does it simply by speaking. It'll be the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. Zero effort. The strongest and the mightiest enemies will be like blowing a dandelion to King Jesus. And with one breath he will destroy wrong that we have been forced to live with in this world that has fallen. And he is not going to step on the meek to get it done. So when we hear human leaders trumpeting their ideals, as we'll hear much of over the course of the next six or so months, and we hear leaders making promises of how their bills and their laws will bring about some kind of utopian ideal according to all of our greatest wishes. If only you would elect me, then I will do these things and all will be made right. I will undo all of the evil of the previous administration and I will establish a new government in righteousness. When all of those promises are made, we are right to look closely. We should be cynical. We should be skeptical because every leader that has come before and made such promises have failed to make good on their promises. So we're we're wise to be cautious and ask questions. Oh, but not so with Jesus. Jesus the Messiah presents himself to us. As the king of an eternal future, not just the next four years. And he deserves our all-out enthusiasm. And that's because he's perfectly dependable. And that's what we see fourthly and finally in verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist faithfulness, the belt of His loins. Jesus is righteous and faithful just by being true to Himself. He never has to correct Himself and He never has to doubt Himself because He is clothed with righteousness and He is clothed with faithfulness. This is not merely what He does, this is who He is. It's His very character. It's bound up in His nature This is the kind of king that deserves our unfailing loyalty and our all-out enthusiasm. And we can't hold anything back from a king like this. Everything that we have belongs to Him and it is rightfully His to do with as He pleases. And if we do hold anything back from Him, then essentially what we're saying is there really must be somewhere a dark side or a false motive or something untrue or untrustworthy somewhere inside of Him that would prevent me from giving everything to Him. Our highest rebellion is to not trust the righteousness and the faithfulness of the branch of Jesse to not trust the righteousness and the faithfulness of Christ and to think and to act autonomously as our own saviors and to disrelish the savior of the world. What are you holding back from Jesus? What hopes are you unwilling to give to him because you don't trust if he changes them, your dreams, that he's got something better in store? What sins are you holding back from him thinking that he is not big enough and sufficient enough and gracious enough to overcome and cleanse and forgive? What pain are you withholding from Him and giving over to Him because you think that your bitterness is a more sufficient substitute to dealing with relationships than trusting in Christ and turning the other cheek and and obeying His Word in those relationships? What is it? What are you holding back and why? I want to suggest that anything and everything that we hold back from Christ is, is motivated ultimately on the heart level by a doubting that he really is what he says he is in verse 5. He might be partly that way. He might be some of that. He might be that way for some of my life, but he's not that for all of my life. Are you holding anything back from Christ? Are you white-knuckling anything in your own life It says, no, I got it? He is so much bigger and greater and wondrous than that. We learn to trust him when we say, I trust this person more than I trust myself. I will trust what he says more than what I feel in any given moment and any given circumstance. When that awareness kicks in, as the biblical gospel helps us through the ministry of the Spirit, that's when we're learning to really trust him. That's when we begin treating him as something more than a Hallmark card to make us feel better every once in a while. And we do so always with a vision for what it is that he has promised. Look at verses six through nine. So we have seen that he is the perfect king And because He rules in the manner that we've just seen in verses 2 through 5, He's been anointed with the Spirit, and He's passionate about justice, He's utterly and perfectly dependable, then we can trust that all that He will do will come to pass, verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Now, for those of you who are not literate in Discovery Channel or Animal Planet, wolves and lambs don't really get along. That's the point. Those who don't get along and are at enmity with one another, one wants to devour the other, the one is running from the other. One tramples, the other gets trampled. Will they dwell now together? And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Same concept. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And the little child shall lead them. Think about that. Little, helpless, vulnerable child will lead big, massive calves, will lead lions and all of them together. And the cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. In other words, the lion isn't going to be hunting anymore. It's going to be eating hay out of a trough. You say, well, how does the lion survive off of hay? I don't know. It's just imagery. The point being that there is all enmity, all war, all bloodshed, All hostility ceases. And in verse 8, the nursing child plays over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Have you ever seen a cobra? Have you ever been to the zoo and looked through and seen a cobra laying there or even coiled up or have his head raised? It's massive. Do you know cobras can be like six, seven, eight feet long? That's almost as tall as Dustin Baker. That's a big snake. Terrifying. But this is kind of ancient Near Eastern language. Some of you go, I don't know. I've never seen a cobra. Maybe we might put it this way. The nursing child shall play over the the bed of the fire ants. And the weaned child is going to put his hand right into the fire ant bed, and he's never going to get bit. It's going to be utter peace and utter tranquility because verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the peace. That's the world that we've been longing for. It's not just going to happen through social evolution. Our human trends are not going to get us there. Nothing less than the upheaval of the second coming of Jesus Christ will bring this about. This new world, Isaiah just told us, will come about through righteous judgment. Christ loves this world. He has made this world. Christ owns this world and he will make everything new. In fact, he refers to it, you see in verse 9, as my holy mountain. That when Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom, the entire world will be his holy mountain. This is speaking of the new heavens and the new earth. Christ is creating a world that far exceeds all of our utopias. Just scan these verses again, verses 6 through 9. He's coming to create a world without hurt. He is coming to create a world where no one will destroy It will be without darkness. There'll be no false friendship and there will be no forced laughter. No guilty consciences. No painful regrets. The very environment is going to breathe the peace and the glory of God and we will never hurt again. And so here's what Isaiah wants us to see in verses six through nine. That the triumph of Jesus doesn't have us in the clouds playing harps with heavenly choirs. The victory of Jesus will transform this world we live in and everything human. It will be the restoring and the awakening and the purifying and the gladdening of all things. Have you ever wondered why we're commanded to eat and to drink and to do whatever we do to the glory of God? it's because that is what we're going to be doing a trillion years from now in the new heavens and the new earth, only without any selfish motives, without ever considering ourselves more important than others, without any competition, without any of this, That we will eat and drink and do everything that we do in the new heavens and the new earth. This physical embodied creation reigning with Christ and serving Christ always ever to the glory of God. Because the entire creation, the new Jerusalem, breathes and exhales the glory of God every second of of the day. That is the glorious utopia that Christ is bringing about. And when we step back and we consider the magnitude of the gospel that is the good news in Jesus Christ, we see that Jesus is not just a religious figure merely. He's not just a good teacher, and He's not a feel-good Hallmark card. He is the heir of all things. And He is the leader that we have been waiting for. He's the leader that we dream about. He is the leader bringing about a government that every ideal constitution for every country that has ever been created has longed for but has failed to bring about. It will only come in Christ. And that is what He has promised. The problem with the gospel is not that it's too small for us and our problems in our lives. The problem with the gospel is that it's too big and too audacious to fit even into the biggest dreams of our puny imaginations. We couldn't come up with it if we would, and we wouldn't if we could. Only Christ, in harmony with the will of His Father from eternity past, is bringing about something that so far exceeds our greatest dreams. And we can believe it. Because on that first Easter Sunday, the resurrected Jesus displayed our future in history. You realize that's what the resurrection was. That's why Paul calls him a first fruits. He's the beginning of a big harvest that's about to come in. And he gives us a glimpse of the future. It's God's way of saying of his son, this is what I can do with all things human." That in the resurrection, it's God saying, admire him, follow him, desire him, and you will have and become like him, and he will give you a place in this new world. Verses 6 through 9. It will be yours. The meek will inherit this world. Amen? That is a glorious promise. And yet the only thing standing between our present reality And this future reality is the command of God. The risen and exalted Jesus is on the edge of his throne, and he's ready. He is ready for the command of his Father. He is ready to come again, and he is ready to finish what he started as an insignificant shoot in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. So through the prophets like Isaiah, God is inviting us to put all of our happiness in this kingdom. And He is demanding with good and sufficient evidence that we do so. Because this is the only truth in the world. All other Gospels are just slapdash mockeries of our longings. But Christ is a hope big enough to satisfy our greatest and deepest and most imaginative desires forever. And we, the members of North Point Church, we get to be a colony of the future kingdom in advance before he comes. That's why our church covenant, quoting the Bible, says we will be eager to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That this church, along with every other faithful gospel-preaching, gospel-believing church, becomes now an outpost, an embassy of God's kingdom, where when you step on this soil, you see a peace and a unity unlike you see anywhere else, and we are eager to bring it about even at the expense of our own desires and our own preferences and our own longings. We're willing to lay down our lives for brothers and sisters. We're willing to love those who are hard to love and we're willing to sacrifice for those who require more than it feels like we have to give sometimes. Because that's what the church does. That we, as the members of this church, get to be a glimpse of a new creation where lions and lambs Joined together, Where powerful and weak are united in Christ. Where there is no longer slave, nor free, nor Jew, nor Greek, nor male, nor female. Where all are one in Christ. Together. One in Christ. The lions don't just know the lambs, but the lions love the lambs. And the lambs don't just know the lions, but the lions love the The lambs. Lions look at lambs and say, oh, your wool looks so beautiful today. You look so great. Why don't you come sit next to me? And the lamb looks up at the lion as the lion roars and goes, whoa, that was amazing. Do it again. It is a complete turning upside down and a reversal of the way that this world works. And we get to be the precursor The glimpse, the appetizer, the foretaste of that future reality. Because for all of us who are in Christ, the old is passing away and the new creation has come. We are new creations in Christ. We are the model home in the new neighborhood that God is building so that people can come in and see what it's like. That's the church. We're not just waiting for that which has not yet come. We are living in that which has already begun by the power of the anointed Christ and the proclamation of his word. And he who began a good word at work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And in that day, verse 10, all of the nations will come and his resting place will be glorious. We will all be still and we will know He is God. Friend, if you're here this morning and your heart is restless from a busy season, from loving stuff too much, from lamenting the stuff you didn't get but wanted. From looking at everything that everybody else around you has that you think, if only I could have that, then I would be happy? Oh, isn't that this season? It's in every window, in every commercial. It's in every ad that goes across your social media. It's everywhere to promote us to be discontent with this life. We have better news in the gospel. That though we may be meek in this world, that though the Lord may have us trampled on and despised, though the world may have us rejected, though we may be insignificant and often overlooked, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And that we have rest in him. I wonder, for your restless heart, for those of you who have been anxious, Are you holding anything back from Christ? And do you trust? Do you believe? Do you hope? That his resting place is glorious. More glorious than any other resting place there is. That his resting place is glorious. Oh, let us trust in this little shoot of Jesse. Seemingly insignificant. Easily overlooked. Hardly believable, this little speck of life and of breath and of fruitfulness in the midst of a world that has been hewn down and destroyed of smoldering stumps. That is Christ. He's all we've got. Let's cling to him.